you would expect Jennifer Dolphson to be an overachiever, wouldn't you? Marvelous. That's, uh, that's happened in several occasions. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is it that you're going to do for the rest of your life? I uh, heard of this daddy that came in and looked at his youngest daughter who uh, didn't have much ambition as far as grades and other things were concerned. And he looked at her and said, why can't you be like your older sister? And she looked at uh, her daddy and said, well, daddy, all I want to do is sit here, watch television, and eat cookies for the rest of my life. That's all she wanted to do. Now, I am very grateful and glad, after all these years, that God gave me the assignment and work that He's given me to do. But if you had known me years and years ago, I would be the last person that you would ever think would do anything like what I'm doing today, that I would ever be a preacher. One teacher said about me, David Mills, we expected things from you, but being a preacher was not one of them. In the seventh grade, I had to deliver a book report to a class, and I uh, was first that day. It came as a complete surprise, had no idea that that's what I was to do, but I walked from the very back of the class to the very front and took my book report that I'd given to my teacher and turned around and looked at a hostile group of seventh and eighth grade kids in that language arts class and I felt an unusual phenomena take over me that has happened several times since then. Beginning at my waist, I felt a creeping heat that climbed up and up and up until it reached my face. And I felt a burning sensation. And my best friend at that time looked at me and said, He's turned red like a light bulb out in front of this whole group of hostile kids. And from that point until I graduated from high school, I had the very dignified nickname, Lightbulb. I was scared to death to stand before a crowd and ever speak in front of them. In fact, I have to be honest with you, uh, 15 minutes before every worship service is severe torture for me. I still get tore up, and I, I find it very, very difficult to do what I'm, what I'm doing now. And I have to pray. I mean, if, and you have to understand, my prayers before I come into worship are not these sweet little dignified things. That They are, help! 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 I've got this test. I've got these people. Some of them don't like me. Help! Some of them do, and they believe me, which is the biggest trial. Charles Spurgeon said before he would step out, or when he would step out onto the platform, he would look at the vast throngs there at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, and he would be absolutely appalled at the burden and responsibility that was his. So my lack of ability and the great responsibility I have are quite overwhelming. And what I have found through the years is that as my assignments have changed, that their difficulty has increased. It doesn't get easier. It gets more and more difficult. And God arranges my life constantly to put me before Him on my face, seeking His help. I feel more needy today than I have ever felt in all my life, in all my ministry. Well, I've got to tell you, I'm in pretty good company. 
I'm also overwhelmed by the burden of responsibility for global evangelization as well. If the world and its size was reduced to merely a hundred people, down from its seven billion, if the world was just a hundred people, here's what we would find in our world. Fifty are male and fifty are female, thereabouts. Twenty-six of the one hundred, if the world was just a hundred, are children. Only eight are over the age of 65. Sixty of them are Asians. Now, Asia is real big. This is somewhat disproportionate. Fifteen are Africans. Fourteen are from the Americas, North, Central, and South America. Eleven are Europeans. Five of them speak English. Five speak Spanish. Three of them will speak Arabic, Hindi, Bengali, Portuguese, each of those. Twelve speak Chinese, and 62 speak other languages. Eighty-three, now this surprised me, eighty-three can read. Seventy-seven have shelter that we would consider shelter. Eighty-seven have safe water or access to it. Fifteen of them are malnourished. Now that has been reduced significantly by 15% since the 70s because of the free markets in Asia. Thirty-three are Christian. 22 are Muslim, 14 are Hindus, 7 are Buddhists, 12 are other religions, and 12 are nothing. And to one degree or another, these same figures, to, in many of these, are reflected actually in our own region. Now let me ask you, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Okay, that plan that you've got, let me ask you this, is it any way connected to the realities of the world that God has given us. You mean to tell me that our world is as it is today and your plan has absolutely no relationship to what we just discovered about our world and that's the way God wants it? And your plan for the rest of your life has nothing to do with those that are outside and different, outside the Christian faith. I, I, I believe God wants us to be connected intimately and dynamically purposefully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to these kinds of realities in our region and in our world. And you may feel like it's increasingly difficult and it's impossible. Well, that's what I'm going to speak on this morning, the impossible Christ. And here, in Matthew 14, our text for this morning, Jesus identified Himself. There was a little confusion in this text over what they saw, whether or not it was Jesus Christ. And Jesus identified himself. Now, he could identify himself with prophecies. He could identify himself with his voice. Today, he could identify himself like he did with Thomas, with the nail prints in his hands and feet, the wound in his side, and the scars upon his brow. But there was a different way that he identified himself here in Matthew chapter 14. He sent his disciples across the lake. They struggled and rode against contrary winds and a storm, for probably about six hours. And sometime between three and six in the morning, Jesus came walking upon the water, and something remarkable happened in this text, beginning in verse number 26. And when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Well, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you 
on the water, and he said to him, Come. Jesus identified himself by giving Peter a command that would make him Christ-like in the realm of the impossible. That is how Jesus identified himself. How in the world do I know what God wants me to do? Well, there are many ways, but I want to focus on one this morning, and that is this. When you've got a hold of what God wants you to do with your life, it will be to you impossible. It'll be entirely Christ-like, but it will resemble and you will feel like He's just commanded you to walk on water. Listen, friend, get it down good, get it down straight, get it down now. Jesus Christ does not command that which is always within our abilities to perform. Jesus doesn't play it safe. If you want to know if something is from Him or not, ask yourself, does it resemble walking on water? That's what we find here in this text. And that's how Jesus identified Himself. And there are a couple of um, missions that arise from this text that are incumbent upon us to embrace and to do. And the first is this. It's an impossibility. Impossibility one, challenge false missions. Now, previous to this text that we read is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle that all four Gospels record. And John makes it clear in John 6.15, and Matthew implies in verses 22 and 23, that the crowd went wild over this feeding of the 5,000. They have expected a military and a political Messiah, which was entirely true, by the way. Uh, We've said oftentimes that their expectation of a military political Messiah was wrong. That's not true. God has promised a militaristic and a political Messiah, but just not right then. Their vision was right. Their view of the enemy and their timing was wrong. And so when Jesus fed the 5,000, they got into apocalyptic fervor. They got into a white heat of political and military intensity. What they didn't realize is that Rome wasn't their biggest problem. Their sin was. And Jesus came to take care of that first before he takes care of the rest in the second coming. So they're in an uproar. They are fervent. They're in a white heat. And so Jesus responds in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples, who were probably cooking up this fervor, he made them get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. It's said twice here. And when he sent the multitude away, he went on the mountain by himself to pray. So this fervor in this heat has burst onto the scene, and Jesus douses it. The timing's off. They believe their primary enemy is Rome when it's actually their sin. Jesus discerned a competing vision amongst his disciples and amongst this crowd, and he sent them away. Jesus sensed pollution among his disciples, dilution of his values, contamination in the crowd. And John records in John 6, he preached a sermon that scalded every one of them in John 6. And in John 6, 66, it says that many did not walk with him thereafter. And so that was Jesus' response. Jesus challenged false missions. We've got to challenge a few in our day 
as well. And I want to mention just a few to you. One is secularism. And that is considering an issue without considering God's will or God's thoughts with it. Secularism is the first one. Secularism, by the way, is indeed a myth. Now, there are people who live as if it's true, but it's a myth. It is impossible to be secular. There are several things you can't change. For example, you cannot change the fact, and we cannot change the fact, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and God made man in His own image. You can't change that. And so, on that account alone, we can't be secular. We can pretend and live an illusionary life as if we're disassociated from reality, as if that's the case. But the truth is, we can't change that God is our creator and therefore our judge. And then, another item, not only creation, but also children. Have you noticed how intense of a focus there is in the Bible on children? God cares deeply about that. And and then, there is not only a creation, uh, but there's also children. Then there are His commandments. You cannot change the fact that God expects something from every human being. He doesn't expect one thing from the Christian crowd as far as His law is concerned, and, and another thing from the rest of the crowd. No, God expects thorough obedience, and if we fail, we need His grace and we need His redemption. And then there's Christ. We can't change that. He's on a mission to magnify Jesus and crown Him King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will have his way. We can't change that. And then there is his church. He's working in present in his church. It's impossible to change that. And then finally, there's the conclusion of it all. The consummation, the judgment. We cannot escape the reality that God is judged and every man, woman that has ever lived upon this earth will face God in judgment. Hebrews 9.27 It's appointed unto man once to die and after this comes the judgment. Is what the script, We can't escape that. It is impossible to be secular. And that's why you've got to be very, very careful with marriage books and self-help books and other works that do not consider God. You've got to measure all of these against His commands, His creation, the corruption in our hearts, uh, against His mission and vision for Jesus Christ and His church and the judgment of God. You see, those kinds of things that do not consider that intensely and do not build around that framework are of only minimal value. You've got to be very, very careful. Then there's the second myth, and that's multiculturalism. All cultures and all opinions and all views, they say, are valid. And you're not to object to one or the other. You just affirm them in their views while you maintain your own. Uh, this is uh, symbolized by the bumper sticker, Coexist. Now, I've discovered something about folks that want us to, be, to, to coexist. And let me say, I appreciate the desire for peace among the different cultures and views and people. Oh, I believe in that. But those who argue for coexistence aren't very peaceful. They're in, always tore up over something. Have you ever noticed that? Always at war with someone. You know why that is? Because nobody believes them and they can't stand it. So they start a verbal war with somebody. It's better just to admit we have mutually exclusive claims and let's love each other anyway like Jesus taught us to. Uh, multiculturalism. Uh, it's also very naive. I don't hear anybody beating the, beating the door down to coexist with ISIS. I got news for you. They're not very interested. They're like the communists of old. They want world domination. And, and then there's the notion of progress. If it's new, it's better. On account of it being new. And there's no way it being new that it can't be better than the old. 
C.S. Lewis said that tendency in literature is called chronological snobbery. That a thing in literature or any other area of life is superior simply because it is new. And that's a hard thing to choke down. Bill Nye, the science guy, made this mistake a few years ago when he complained about Noah and his ark. He said there's no way Noah could have built the ark because recent boat builders have not been able to reproduce it themselves. As if recent boat builders are superior to the ancient ones. In fact, the thing's been built in Kentucky. So they just ignored Bill Nye, the science guy, and went ahead, built the boat anyway, and so did Noah, and it floated and did what it was designed to do. So the notion, the notion that if it's new, it's superior is enormously problematic. Now, let me say also, just because it's new doesn't mean it's not true. We've got to be careful of that as well. I like the balance that Vance Havner talked about. He said, in churches, we need old people and we need young people. That's true for society as well. The old keep us from going too fast and the young keep us from going too slow. Youth has fire and older has light and we've got to have both. Uh, there's, a, there's a fourth myth and that is the myth of feelings. Uh, we might more properly call it personalism, but the notion is, I think it I feel it, therefore it's worthy of respect, and how dare you not respect my feelings? How dare you not respect my thoughts? Now they apply that to others, but not to themselves. What if I feel you're out of your mind? You see, it's self-defeating. And there's a fifth myth, and that is the notion of majority. We might better call this consensus. This is the steamroller tactic, where they say a majority of so-and-so thinks such-and-such. And I always respond, well, they did that in the 30s in Nazi Germany with the Jews. How do we try that on? Now, if the majority of folks believe it, it's good to give it serious thought and to contemplate it. But it doesn't always mean that it's necessarily true. In fact, my mother cured me of this majority consensus steamroller tactic when I was a boy. I would come in and say, may I do this? And she would say, no. And I would say, well, everyone else is doing it. And here's how she cured me. Well, if everyone else, and you help me here if you heard this, if everyone else was jumping off the Empire State Building, would you? Did you have a mother that asked you that question? Oh, she, eight years old. I was done with that. Completely done with the notion that the majority is always right. God may have a unique thing to do. Well, no, I don't want to jump off the Empire State Building today. I'd rather take the elevator down 102 floors and drink coffee with my family at the bottom. That's what I'd like to do. So these are some myths that have got to be overcome. And I will say to you, if we give too much attention to these voices, what will usually happen is that we give more attention to these voices than we do our God, and we miss what God wants us to do. Reminds me of the... Um, newlyweds, soon after they were married, the husband said to the wife, hey, I want us to talk tonight. I've got a list of your defects I want to go through so we can correct them. He said, uh, can we do that? And she said, well, of course. In fact, you need to know it's all the defects in me that kept me from getting a better husband than you. So, <laughs> These defects will keep you from getting the kind of life that God wants you to have. Now, you have to understand that in biblical Christianity... In biblical Christianity, there are two impulses that have survived since the day of Jesus, and they should. They're very good. 
One is discernment. We're allergic to error. We sense it. We hear things and see things that may be a bit earlier than what maybe some do as well. Amongst us, there are some sheep, and then amongst us also are some sheepdogs. The sheep don't hear or see anything going out in the woods, but the sheepdog always does. And there is that impulse in the Christian faith. The Holy Spirit and the knowledge of the Word makes us very sensitive to that. And so probably week by week, somewhere in the Christian world, you're going to hear someone that will communicate something that is discerning. But then the second thing is defense. Discernment and defense. There is a need, almost an indescribable impulse, to voice the truth of God and to defend it. That is Christ-like and it is biblical Christianity. Now, wilting before the world and becoming so frightened that we're paralyzed into silence might be popular among some, and it may go by many different names, but Christian is not one of them. It is Christ-like to discern and to defend truth. And the horrible sin of wilting into silence, the grotesque mindset that would wilt over the truth and not stand for Jesus Christ is something to which God has something to say. In fact, at the end of the service, God is very glad to forgive and we will give you an opportunity to meet Him and cleanse that horrible sin. So the first impossibility is to challenge false missions, but the second is to champion true missions. Now in life, there are two kinds of storms that are, uh, uh, that are represented by two biblical characters. One storm is the Jonah storm. Jonah rebelled against the Lord. He went, wanted to go to one mission field when God wanted him at another. He wanted to go to the moderate Muslims when God wanted him to go to the radicals like ISIS. So Jonah headed off for Tarshish instead of Nineveh. And God got his attention. He nearly capsized that boat, and Jonah found himself uh, down in the mouth of a fish. And that was a storm that got his attention and turned him around. That is a Jonah storm of correction. Correction. And sometimes God will allow or send storms into our life to correct our path, to correct our attitude, to correct our priorities. But there's a second kind of storm that has nothing to do with Jonah's disobedience. And that's the kind of storm that they're facing here. It's not a storm of correction. It's a storm of maturation to mature us, to grow us. And that's what Peter is facing here along with the other disciples in Matthew chapter 14, a storm comes upon the sea like it was apt to do, especially with the arrangement of the land and the water and the mountains that surrounded it. It was liable to those kinds of storms, and it was intended not to correct them, but to change them. So Peter and his disciples needed that. Peter and Jesus' disciples needed this kind of storm. You see, they had a long mission in front of them where they would need to be fit and able to pull off the day of Pentecost couple of years later. that They would need to be able to travel from Jerusalem over to India and China like Thomas did. And there are churches there today that ascribe their founding to the Apostle Thomas. They needed to travel to Egypt like Mark would. They needed to travel like Rome like some of the others did and face the butchery and the villainous attitudes of a Nero. They needed the kind of discipline necessary to write the New Testament. And so Jesus puts them through this storm to mature them. And what I need to say to you is, it's very likely that whatever plan you think God has for you, you have underestimated the difficulty of fulfilling it. It's very likely. 
It's probably more difficult than you now imagine. But if God doesn't put you through some kind of challenge and storm and difficulty, you're not going to get any better than what you are now. And you'll not influence any more than you're influencing now. And so there's some characteristics to this. And one, whatever it is that God wants you to do will always be designed first to crown Jesus as king. Now the disciples are facing contrary winds. There's a storm and Jesus rearranges the molecules of the sea in order to turn them into solid ground on which he walks. He gets magnified as Lord, Master, and Creator of all. And Jesus ends up showing that all of their fears are actually under His feet. And so are yours. They wanted Jesus to sack and defeat and dominate Rome. Jesus had a much larger vision than that. Not Rome, but all of creation and nothing less. He was to rule it all. And so to do what it is that God wants you to do, you're going to have to surrender to the kind of God who uses water to get His work done. And obedient disciples who are willing, if necessary, to walk it. In other words, you've got to surrender to circumstance to make much of Jesus Christ. And, and I do need to say, with due respect to popular authors, I really don't believe that each of us has a, an individual purpose in life. I don't believe that. No, 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 not at all. There's only one purpose to all of creation. One. And that is to magnify Jesus, and that's the mission and purpose of the Father. Now, you may have a different path to do that. You may have a different work, but there's only one purpose in life, and that is to magnify Him, and in magnifying Him to bring the world to His name. Ephesians chapter 3. That's what that's all about. So, the one purpose all of us have is far greater than what we've imagined thus far, if you have a competing purpose. And that purpose is to magnify and crown Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, to lift Him up so all the nations will be drawn to Him. The path and the work you do may be different and specific. That's perfectly fine. But your mission in life will align with the Father's mission in life. So it crowns Jesus as King. But then there's a second element to it, a second characteristic of it. And that is it counters human fears. Have you ever read what Jesus said in verse 27 and verse 31? But immediately, Jesus spoke to them. Now here they are in a storm. They're seasoned fishermen, at least four of them. They're losing their mind. They're out of their wits. Their boat is about to capsize. And look what Jesus says. Be of good cheer. It would never occur to me to think in a moment like that to be of good cheer. And then, oh, oh, it gets worse, if I can say it from a human perspective. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus is, to some, Jesus is to some outrageous, unreasonable. Jesus' words here are not very sensitive at all. And yet the Son of God, walking on the water, still says to the world, I'm here, be of good cheer, do not be afraid. And that's what he says to you. Jesus' true work in your life is probably, in many ways, counterintuitive. It may be very contrary to what you're thinking. Now, therefore, you've got to walk with God by faith. And if what it is you think you should do does not require faith, 
It may not be from God. But if it causes your teeth to chatter and your knees to knock, you need to consider that may be from God. It counters human fears. Then third, it's, it calms anxious spirits. Verses 28 through 29. Peter answered and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, he eventually sunk. We know that. But at least he got to walk on the water. Isn't that marvelous? He got to walk on the water. Philippians 4, 6 in the King James Version says, Be careful for nothing. If Jesus is in it, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. We have no personal cares when we are doing His will. He has them all. Our welfare has become His responsibility. Andrew Murray said this, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to Him. He's willing to do it. I like what Adrian Rogers said as well. He said, where God leads, He feeds. Where He directs, He protects. And where He guides, He provides. You don't have to worry. He will take care of your business if you're committed to taking care of His. And no one can put it any better than Jesus did in Matthew 6.33. And I hope every serious Christian has this verse memorized. uh, Where Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Friend, we can't get it any better than that. And so it will calm anxious spirits, but then it's intended to convert others to Christ. Now that's much of what this passage is designed and tailored to teach. Verses 30 and 31. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Donald Gray Barnhouse was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years. And Harold Ockingay was a pastor of Park City's Baptist Church, a very historic congregation in Boston. The two of them were friends, and they decided to arrange a preaching mission for 30 straight days from Boston to Pittsburgh, where Clarence McCartney was pastoring First Presbyterian Church. And they would rotate each night as to who would be first and who would be second. One night, Ockengay would preach first, and then the next night, Barnhouse would preach. Well, Barnhouse prepared a new message every service. So he preached uh, each of those evenings uh, a different message. Ockingay preached the same message every night. Every night. So they had done 29 services, and they're about to arrive at First Presbyterian Church, Pittsburgh, and they are to do their 30th service. And it was arranged to where Barnhouse would preach first, and Ockingay would close the service that evening. Well, Barnhouse thought that he had heard Ockingay's message so often, with its introduction, its major divisions and points, its illustrations, and its transitions, that he would preach Ockingay's sermon first up that night. And so he gets up before this crowd, and he preaches Ockingay's sermon that he has preached 29 previous nights. And Ockingay just sits there on the front row, very content, very satisfied. And when Barnhouse is finished, he sits down, and Ockingay gets up, and Ockingay gets up and preaches an entirely different message. Completely different message. 
And after the service, Barnhouse and Ockingay talk, and Barnhouse said, well, I guess you were surprised that I preached your message. He said, yes, I, I was. He said, but the people enjoyed it. He said, yes, they, they did, but they didn't enjoy it nearly as much as they did when I preached it here four months ago. <laughs> That's a preacher goof. Now, by the time Matthew writes his gospel, Peter is the preacher of the early New Testament church. I mean, he's the flaming Pentecost evangelist. Peter preached one message and 3,000 came to the Lord. And out of that, they birthed the church, and some historians estimate it got up to 25,000 in Jerusalem. And he was the first to take the gospel to the Gentiles with Cornelius. And eventually gave his life. Peter was the preacher, but in verse 30 and 31, he had a preacher goof. He became afraid. And he took his eyes off of Christ, and he saw the boisterous waves and winds, and he began to sink. Now look, he cries out in verse 30, Lord, save me! You know what? Peter's a seasoned fisherman, and Peter can't swim. Why didn't he start swimming? Ladies and gentlemen, I suspect he couldn't swim, so he has to cry out, which makes his walking on the water even more remarkable. Dude can't swim, and he walks on water. He is thoroughly unable to save himself, and he does what some need to do here today. He cried out to the Lord, Lord, save me. So he doesn't take up thrashing on the water he doesn't take any kind of histrionics or any panic at all. He does the one thing that's going to save him. He calls on the name of the Lord. Romans 10.11 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. Will not be ashamed. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is enough grace in Jesus Christ to cancel any sin. Whether it's been timidity, whether it's been fear, whether it's been silence, whether it's been pursuing our own work and our own view, vision, and mission in life, whatever it may be, it may be these or 10 million other horrible things, there's enough grace in Jesus Christ to forgive. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said that God is more willing to forgive than we are to sin. And that's where we find ourselves today. A couple of boys in Long Island Sound who were in a boat and they were out doing whatever it was that they were doing and a storm comes along and one boy can swim and the other one cannot. In fact, the one that can is quite an accomplished swimmer. He's been trained, he's won some competitions in swimming and the storm capsizes their boat and the boy who can't swim begins to panic and thrash about. The boy who can swim gets near him and says to him, stop panicking and be still so I can save you. And the boy does. He takes hold of him and brings him to safety. The Lord Jesus is in the water with you. He's very willing to get there. And he's telling you, stop trying. You can't make yourself right with my God. Only I can do that. Only I can save. And by virtue of His death, His burial, and His resurrection, 
Jesus Christ has purchased enough grace to cleanse you from anything that spoils your memory, that breaks your heart, whatever it is you're wanting to hide from this morning. He can do it, and He wants to. And so this morning, as we have worshipped and as we have spoken His Word, He's made His way up and down these aisles and through these pews, and He's touched your heart. And He's moving on you to open up your heart and life and give yourself to Him. If you will simply reject a life outside of Jesus Christ and repudiate your repudiation of His will for you, and if you will trust the death of Christ and His resurrection and give your life and sins to Him, Jesus Christ will reach down and lift you above the boisterous waves and make you a child of God that God can use. And He wants to do it today. I want us to pray about that. Will you stand with me, please, and let's pray about it and ask God to do a neat work in your life. Father, we do pray that You would make that real today. We adore You, Lord Jesus, for walking on the water. And Lord, we are kind of excited to hear You say, Come and join You. It is a bit frightening, though. I pray that You would give friends today the trust to step out and to walk towards You. Help them to leave behind anything that would keep them from Jesus and help them to embrace Him and all that He is. Now let me tell you what we're going to do today. In a moment, our staff are going to be standing up front here. And if you need some help finding Jesus Christ and coming to Him, we want to help you. There's no magic in walking down the aisle. This is just a very, very convenient time to come. And if you'll come, let, let me tell you what will happen. Our staff will give you qualified, trained, excellent help in your spiritual decision. And then other people will see and they'll start praying for you. This is the most electric and positive environment in which to make a decision for Christ. Why don't you come? Maybe God's moving on you to become part of Beach Haven. You can come. Maybe God's moving on you to give a burden over to Him or surrender to His will. You need some prayer. You come. You can bring someone with you or you can just come on your own. But I'm going to finish my prayer and we're going to ask you to come. Lord God, would you please, when we're done here, fit and equip each one of us because of these moments to be on mission for you. In Jesus' name, amen.